podcasting from Dallas, Texas. I am Shireen, and this is the Yumlish Podcast. Yumlish is working to empower you to take charge of your health through diet and exercise and reduce the risk of chronic conditions like type 2 diabetes and heart disease. Through amplifying the voices of healthcare professionals, educators, and communities, we hope to share a unique perspective and a culturally relevant approach to managing these chronic conditions with you each week. Registered dietitian Candace Jones talks to us about the National Diabetes Statistics Report of 2020, the barriers to diabetes care as it relates to cultural food practices, and shares recommendations for culturally competent dietary resources. Candace Jones, originally from Maryland, presides as the Dietetic Technician Program Chair at Cincinnati State Technical and Community College, overseeing the Dietetic Te- Technician and Pre-Nutrition Science degrees and Dietary Management Certificate. For the past 13 years, Candace has also continued to work as a Certified Diabetes Care and Education Specialist at the Christ Hospital Diabetes and Endocrine Center. Welcome, Candace. Thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. So, Candace, diving right in, I want to start out by asking you what sparked your interest in nutrition and led you to eventually become a registered dietitian? Well, I was always very active in sports at a young age. I specifically played tennis, softball, and basketball, um, but also battled with asthma. And so when trying to figure out how to manage my asthma and then also physically recover after, let's say, three-hour tennis matches. I... So that is that is great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I want to dive in and to you about the National Diabetes Statistics Report of 2020, it suggests that the Black and Hispanic Latino populations are disproportionately affected by diabetes. I want to get your take to see why you think that is. So based on the research that's been conducted, two of the most significant indicators um, when assessing diabetes risks um, or statistics themselves are low socioeconomic status and then um, level of education. They tend to go hand in hand. So uh, typically what we see is those that have a higher socioeconomic status more often um, have a higher level of education and therefore an increased awareness of where to find resources about diabetes um, and have more access to healthcare resources. So on the flip side of that, those with lower socioeconomic status are more likely to have lower education level. Um, So we're looking at high school or even less than high school, um, and then more likely to have uh, limited access to healthcare resources. And personally, I've seen this in Cincinnati over my 13 years as being a diabetes educator, which is why it's so important to get out into communities to start to be visible resources. So important. How have the traditional cultural foods associated with these populations really changed? So a couple of things when it comes to our cultural or traditional foods. One, how much we consume. Our portions have greatly increased um, ever since the 1970s specifically. Uh, But then also how often we consume these these foods. Uh, As an African-American, I remember growing up with fried chicken and it was typically only served at special occasions. So maybe someone's birthday, uh, 
um, or Christmas, but specifically celebrations. And now we can go to gas stations and see fried chicken being provided. Um, But again, our portions, we went from a six inch plate to now a 10, in some places, 12 inch plates. I mean, that's these traditional foods get a bad rap often, but it's about how much we consume and how often we're consuming them. But it's also paired with the fact that there's a lot more of access to processed foods. And we have a significant decrease in physical activity. So if we're traveling back in time to, let's say, days of slavery, slaves could burn over 5,000 calories uh, working in the fields. Uh, So those calories from these these meals that may be containing high fat uh, were necessary, uh, but we're not nearly as active and our portions have grown and we're eating some of these foods more often. So it's not necessarily the foods are negative. It's what are we doing with those foods? And then what are the barriers to specifically diabetes care related to cultural food practices? I love this question. So it's kind of multi-layered. If we're specifically talking about patients or clients, um, lack of culturally relevant resources. Um, can I get resources or handouts or materials that are in um, different languages? Um, and if I can, are they easy to um, for the clients to read? And what's their education level? What's their health literacy? Um, are they able to understand what these handouts say? I also think that the method in which we provide nutrition information or diabetes information. Um, I think the old school method is lecturing and passing out handouts that are typically uh, black and white versus using pictures or colors or other types of visuals or demonstrations, some type of hands-on and involvement with clients to help stimulate um, and engage clients uh, to better understand how to manage diabetes. I think there are also a lot of misunderstandings or misperceptions, exceptions about uh, the expense of of healthy foods. And I think there are missed messages sent about uh, the notion that we always have to eat organic or quote unquote um, clean foods. Uh, but we also have to look at f- food availability, food deserts. And lastly, I, I really want to focus on the family support system. Uh, often there's this concern about diabetes being uh, disgraceful or somehow shaming the family. And if family were to find out about diabetes or someone having diabetes, the, the type of support becomes more of the food police, and therefore there's that sense of guilt. Uh, there's an old saying that I grew up with in my household, um, my family, you don't air your dirty laundry on the clothesline for everyone to see. And unfortunately, diabetes um, often can be viewed as that, and it shouldn't be. And that's what we're working on changing. Um, and then there's also this population, specifically I'm thinking about Latino population, that there could be that fear of being deported or there are some legal issues, um, which hopefully we're in the process of, of changing that. Um, but then when it comes to the educator side, uh, educator side, sometimes there are barriers to actually finding materials that are culturally competent, but I'll be addressing some solutions to that, some available resources here shortly. Um, but there's also the issue of whether or not we're providing diabetes education as an inpatient versus outpatient slash community. Um, and time is very limited as an inpatient dietitian or educator versus outpatient. We may, not always, but we may have a little bit more time, um, such as an hour session, a two hour session to work with clients. And I think that's where inpatient and outpatient slash community um, diabetes educators and specialists need to work together. We need to have more referrals or referral process in order to treat the community, help the community. Uh, Lastly, I think that sometimes there are barriers or as I like to call them resistance to change uh, among individuals. And I think that we need to take this as just a 
a period or moment for growth, for personal growth, to think about why we got into healthcare. We want to help others, which means helping others involves me learning how to teach others, not the way that I would want to be taught, but maybe the way that could engage someone else. Um, so it's, it involves thinking outside the box, which takes more time if we're unfamiliar with it. So with that, I want to talk about the cultural considerations, specifically in diabetes as education, and uh, charter us a, a path for that. Yes. So the first component is, I think it's important that we all acknowledge the fact that there are cultural perceptions of health that are very unique and different for each individual. Everyone views health differently. And so having that as the initial notion uh, going in and meeting with a client or patient uh, greatly can help starting the, the process of opening one's mind um, and being an active listener. Uh, what is your client uh, stating that they learn best from? So when we're considering the context of learning experiences, which is different for everyone, uh, how can we best assist someone? So for example, in diabetes, old school methods are the exchange system, carb counting. Uh, for many of my clients, I actually don't do a lot of carb counting. Uh, especially when working with type 2 diabetes, I may be working more on portion control or using my plate methods. Um, and, and that helps also with that health literacy uh, component because um, within health literacy, there's also numeracy. So we're dealing with numbers. Can we understand and identify what numbers mean in relation to our health? Uh, our health? But then also someone's willingness to carb count. If someone does not feel comfortable with carb counting, that's not a great place to start. Diabetes can be managed in other ways. It's not a one size fits all. I also like to try to address any limitations to diabetes care needs. So I always have conversations about food access or availability. I, I, I look at can someone um, afford transportation or do they have transportation to appointments? What type of healthcare coverage do they have? Because financial barriers are also very prevalent uh, within different communities. Um, but again, also assessing what kind of environment is, is a patient or client trying to learn in. So as I mentioned, inpatient is very different than outpatient. And even both of those are different from community settings. So such as a church setting where someone may feel a lot more comfortable with their peers talking about diabetes. I try to be as sensitive, culturally sensitive as possible. And remember my own cultural humility that how I grew up is very different from how others have grown up and their morals and values or how they, their relationship to food um, is. And so I try to meet patients or clients with where they are at. That is where we start. And then I, I try to provide information in any type of manner that is very relatable to the learner or the patient or client. Um, and I try to be as person-centered as possible when helping someone create their goals uh, around their nutrition management or diabetes management, I should say. So again, really looking at are any resources that I use culture, age, literacy level, and uh, learning readiness appropriate? You mentioned uh, MyPlate, and I'm curious to if you can share an example with us of what that MyPlate looks like and how you sort of um, adapt that for, for various cultures. Absolutely. One of my resources that I love to use is out of the Bronx, New York, and it is called the Institute of Family Health. The Inter Institute of Family Health has done a great job of basically creating materials or resources that are patient-centered, uh, that are directly targeting the needs of medically underserved communities. So the communities we're basically talking about, and they actually created these wonderful 
colorful my plates. So again, half the plate is filled with non-starchy vegetables from a specific cultural background. A quarter of it has some type of protein, and then the other quarter has some type of um, starch or carbohydrate. And so they have what they call the American plate that has like spaghetti and um, or pasta with a salad, and they have meatballs. Uh, but they also have plates from um, African American culture, which then has macaroni and cheese, it has greens, it has roasted chicken instead of fried chicken. They have a criollo plate that kind of focuses more on the Caribbean. Uh, and they have a Mexican plate, which is very different than the Caribbean plate. And, and so I strongly recommend uh, looking up the uh, Family Institute of Health um, in order to take, or the Institute of, Fam of Family Health, I should say, to take a look at these my plates. And they will allow you to use these as resources. All you have to do is email them that you're interested in using these as diabetes resources, and they will send them as PDFs for free. Now, with that said, actually on the um, Indian um, native plate is available, or my native plate is available, which focuses on different indigenous tribes or uh, Native Americans as to how to structure their my plate too. And this is a government website. So again, it is free to use. It is www.ihs.gov diabetes. And so they have a great plate that also follows the structure. When we had the, as I like to call them, the universal cultural uh, food guide pyramids, uh, they were tools more for, I would say, the educators or specialists more than um, the community. And when they went away and we just had this my plate structure through the UD USDA, there wasn't as much of a, an initiative to create those, that same effort of creating culturally competent my plate structures or templates. And that's exactly what um, the Institute of Family Health did. Thank you for sharing those uh, resources. I am going to ask you for other recommendations that you may have uh, for culturally competent dietary, um, you know, any other resources that you may have to that end? Absolutely. Old Ways. Old Ways is a wonderful website that focuses on African, Asian, Mediterranean, vegetarian, vegan, um, and of course, African um, practices, dietary practices. But then there's also a really good paperback resource specifically focusing on diabetes called Cultural Food Practices. Cultural Food Practices. It's actually written by the Diabetes Care and Education Dietetic Practice Group. And the authors are Cynthia Goody and Lorena Drago. This is a great resource that can be found on the eatright.org website for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. It is very detailed, thorough, pertaining to different cultures. What are their uh, considerations? What of the health risks that are often seen and how to address them um, through cultural sensitivity competence. Wonderful resource. If you're working in diabetes or even heart disease, strongly recommend that purchase. Thank you for that. Um, so with that, we're toward the end of the episode, Candice. Uh, this episode just flew by. Um, how can our listeners connect with you and learn more about your work? Best way to, to connect with me is through LinkedIn, and I believe my URL will be provided. Uh, I can also be reached by going to the Cincinnati State Technical and Community College website. I am the program chair of the Dietetic Mission Program, and my email address is candice.jones at cincinnatistate.edu. 
Lovely. Thank you so much for sharing. And thank you so much for coming on this episode and talking to us today. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. And so to all our listeners out there, head over to our Instagram and we have a poll set up for you and tell us how you feel the healthcare that you have previously been provided, uh, if it has been culturally relevant to you. So how do you feel about that? Uh, let us know your thoughts. Again, head over to our Instagram at yumlish underscore and find us. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with registered dietitian Candace Jones. We definitely did. Before we go, here's a clip from next week's episode with Dr. Ian Patton. And when we look at healthcare itself, um, doctors and and healthcare professionals oftentimes aren't actually trained a whole lot in obesity management specifically. They're experts in you know health and well-being, but obesity is one of these things that they're just not trained in uh, generally. So there's a lack of understanding about what's available, what's evidence-based in terms of treatment and management of obesity and, and even just the lack of understanding of obesity as a chronic disease in and of itself. So it creates this kind of environment where there's a lot of shame and blame placed on the individual for something that is not entirely under their control. We generally think about obesity as a simple equation of eat less, move more, or calories in, calories out. And it's just not that simple. There's biological and physiological factors. There's genetic factors that influence it. And there's environmental and psychological factors. And a lot of these things are outside of the individual's control. And so we're oversimplifying a very complex problem. And I think that's kind of the basis of weight bias in healthcare. And to give you an example of what that looks like, it's there's lots of instances where people are just not treated fairly or they're treated differently because of their size and their weight. Make sure to tune in next Thursday for the full interview and a great episode on the Yumlish podcast. Finally, if you like these reviews and think we should keep them going let us know on social media thank you for listening to the yumlish podcast make sure to follow us on social media at yumlish underscore on instagram and twitter and at yumlish on facebook and linkedin for tips about managing your diabetes or other chronic conditions you can also visit our website yumlish.com for even more information and to get involved with all of the exciting opportunities yumlish has to offer All of the links are in the show notes below, so please don't hesitate to check us out. If you like this week's show, make sure to subscribe to the Yumlish podcast. Give us a like, comment, or a five-star review and share us with a friend. This is Shireen signing off. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Remember, your health always comes first. Stay well.